Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On today's crew call, we have... Cinematic, impresario, and also television architect, Simon Kinberg. He's just wrapped the first season of Invasion, which Apple TV Plus has given a second season to, and he's already been breaking story on that. And he's got a new movie coming out in 2022, the Jessica Chastain action ensemble movie, The 355. What was your inspiration here for, it's a very uh, non-traditional alien invasion show. Uh, It is about the humans. It is about, it is a slow burn. Mm -hmm. Uh, The aliens are something, we could consider it something environmental almost, you know. Um, Tell me about that. Well, the initial inspiration was um, the H.G. Wells novel, War of the Worlds. Uh, someone, uh, Audrey Chan, who's the executive producer on the show and runs my company, called me and said that the television rights were expiring for the book and would I be interested? And I said that, you know, I've always wanted to do something in that subgenre of science fiction, the alien invasion genre. And I've loved, I love the book. And the, but the more I started thinking about it, the more I was thinking War of the Worlds, I would want the whole world to be represented rather than what we're used to, which is just America or the UK. The book is obviously the UK. Um, and as, as it sort of percolated for me, it, it became a, a essentially what it is now, which is like a mashup of War of the Worlds and Babel, um, where you're seeing multiple perspectives from multiple continents. And increasingly, you know, as someone who spent most of my, pretty much all of my career in features, um, where you've got to tell a lot of story in, call it two hours, um, the opportunity to tell story um, over a longer um, period, so that you had 10 hours to tell a story. I got really excited about this idea that you could live with the characters more than you normally have opportunity to do so in genre movies. And in a way, I approached it as, okay, maybe the first season of an alien invasion show could be almost like the first act of an alien invasion movie. Mm-hmm. We meet the characters, the aliens show up, Bad stuff seems to be happening. The worst stuff happens at the very end. But you have really like lived with the characters. But in because you have five times more than that, you have ten hours as opposed to thirty minutes to stretch out your um, growing intimacy uh, with the characters. It could be almost like a drama um, with the genre elements, essentially as like a magnifying glass on the drama dramas that are happening in the characters' lives. Um, and that got really exciting to me um, because I just felt like um, you could create all of these different um, crises, traumas in people's lives before the invasion even happens. And the invasion could just exacerbate and explode all of those things. So I think a big question 
that a lot of fans have is Sam Neill's character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some think he's dead, but is he really, or will we find out more next season? I don't want to answer that. I mean, I, I've lived a life of spoilers and no spoilers and X-Men movies and, you know, all, all, like the, the, the worst of the um, people um, having theories that go deep down in Reddit. Um, I like the fact that people don't know the answer. Um, I have a sense of what the answer is. Um, and I don't really want to tip it one way or the other, only because I think part of, for me at least, the fun of making the show and, and certainly the, the people I've talked to who like the show, the fun of watching the show is feeling like you're on the ground with the characters, mm -hmm. um, that you're really watching and feeling what it would be like to really experience um, something as unfathomable as an alien invasion. And so I don't want to, um, you know, I, I don't want to uh, tip people. I want them to feel like they're experiencing something in real time. Was this the bow for season one you were always looking to tie? Yeah. Was this, did it always end on the beach with them looking out? It didn't necessarily end on the beach. That was definitely a discovery in the process with um, uh, David uh, Weil and, and, and Andrew Baldwin and the other writers um, that worked on the show. So the specifics of that, I don't know when we discovered that, but um, it was always for me that the second to last episode would be the mega, um, we think we've won, big battle, throw as much money as we can into, into the action of that episode. And then the, the final episode would be this sort of quiet aftermath character recovery um, episode that ends with the twist um, and, and reveal that actually something even worse has come. And I always did imagine that it would end with um, one, or actually I thought maybe many characters looking up in the sky and seeing um, what was coming. Uh, so the, the who and the exactly where that came um, uh, through the process of all the different collaborators in the show. I have one, I have another concrete question to ask okay. you. Is Hanata really dead? <laughs> or, or we don't, we, again, that's, yeah. it, you've just answered the question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I love that you're asking these questions because the hope for the show and this isn't a dodge of your question. It, it, it's, yeah. The hope of the show is that people will care enough to want to know, especially mm -hmm. with Hanada, because the Mitski Hanada love story was something that did come very early on in the process. Um, and uh, we all took a lot of care in crafting. And I think Shioli um, and Rinko did such an extraordinary job of bringing it to life as actors. Um, so the question really in some ways is, and I, and I guess it, it is your question, is, did she even survive the 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 explosion of the hoji uh, um so that that's the that's really the, the the bigger question and and how much of really the season has been or the first season was mitsuki chasing a ghost the ghost of her love which i think is something extraordinarily romantic um and how much of it is her actually chasing something that or someone who is still out there um, in the in space or the ethos somewhere somehow, um, and, and I I just really loved this idea of a of, of a love story, a romance where you refuse to believe, you refuse to let go, you refuse to believe um, that the person is gone, and in a way, it's a metaphor for so many things, right? Like probably all of us have been in a relationship where it's ended sooner than we wanted it to end. Um, and, you know, it, it took us a while to recover and probably all of our friends to staging an intervention at some point and telling us it's over. Um, and this is just the mega sci-fi version of that. Um, 
I have a science question. Hydrochloride, most commonly used as salt. <laughs> this can kill the aliens, but it's a key ingredient in medication, which helps humans live. Can you comment on that? Yes. Wow. You've really done your homework and I deeply appreciate it. We had a lot of really cool um, consultants in the show and um, that's not a, it's not a, it's not an accident metaphorically. It's potentially not an accident, even literally. Um, uh, but it can only in the show, it only actually works on um, the alien when the shard is close um, to the alien. Um, and so that shard has something to do with in that scene that you're, you're, you're referencing um, when the guy says, I think we can kill it. Um, it's, it doesn't work at first. And then when Anisha gets closer with the shard, it does work. Um, and so there is some mystery to that as well um, that's built into the show. But yeah, we specifically, you know, we, 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 took, we, we took a lot of detailed care um, in all the decisions we made in the show. And some of them may feel random in the first season or, or disconnected in the first season, but um, the strands do start to come together um, in a more accelerated way in the second season and hopefully subsequent beyond that. And then the symbolism, the, the whole notion of a circle and the Moana of it all, the Moana <laughs> song of it. Can you, can you expound more on that? Is it just, we're all interconnected as we, yeah. as we find out more as Casper has visions and. Yeah. The, 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 you know, I think thematically for me, there were a lot of things that, 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 from the beginning, um, me and David and Audrey and then Andrew um, talked about and, and really were my, my initial instincts. Um, and it's maybe the reason why I went from it being a single protagonist to a multiple protagonist um, story was this notion that we are all stronger when we are united. I mean, obviously that's sort of a cliche thing to say, but it is true in a time where, um, you know, I conceived this show well before I ever imagine that the world would be facing a global pandemic that doesn't care you know about borders and races and gender and and sexual preference and all those things so you know i i um i i i definitely increasingly felt um but even from the beginning felt like this was a show that was beyond the united states it was about a united world um and it showed the vulnerability um, that we have as human beings, partly because we are not united. Uh, and that circle in some ways is kind of uh, the key. It's not like the key, like it's a clue, you know, um, uh, Easter egg, but it's thematically the key uh, to our survival. And ultimately, you know, even in the first season, you see um, the Trevante storyline and Casper and Jamila storyline come together. Ultimately, we'd want to see more connections, whether they're literal connections, thematic connections, or kind of cross-continental magical connections um, between these characters. Uh, so yeah, it, 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 the, the notion of interconnectedness and the power of interconnectedness um, is central to the show. Um, when do you start breaking story on season two? We have done that. Um, we've been work I've been working with the writer's room for many, many months now. So um, we, we got the official um, announcement and green light uh, on, our, on our second season, um, but the writer's room started uh, uh, over the summertime um, and we're well into season two. One of the things that was really interesting to me, again, as someone who was a novice, you know, I've been working obviously in, in entertainment for, God, it makes me seem really old, but for 20 plus years, I started when I was in grad school with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, so it's been a long time. Um, 
but it's been almost entirely in features. And so part of what was one of the many learning curves or learning experiences I had on this show was um, breaking a second season of a show before the first season comes out might not be the best actual way um, to go about doing um, these things. It is in terms of timing, right? Because it's like, otherwise you're waiting three, four years for the second, second season to come out. But we, I learned so much from the responses uh, to the first season. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, going into Reddit and Twitter and places where um, they're mostly designed to, 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 to tear down whatever you build up. I, I, you know, but there's a lot of really great stuff on Twitter and Reddit and, um, and the internet as well. Uh, but also talking to friends and then just watching it through a different, through a different perspective moment in my life um, lens, even the lens of where we are in COVID. Um, uh, so, you know, we got really almost the whole season done for second, for season two. And, um, and then I wanted to balance that and look at it again through the sort of lens of, um, the response reaction to the first season, which has been, you know, incredibly, um, positive, which is great. And it's right. We get a second season and, um, and globally, it's really interesting the way that different countries react and respond to it. And there's a lot of data that, um, we've been privy to. And, um, so I, 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 I'm back in the room, like literally when we get off the, off this, um, uh, zoom, I will get in my car and drive to the writer's room, uh, and, and be with them for the rest of the day as we sort of re-break certain elements of season two. When do cameras roll? In this um, ideally, uh, in a world where, you know, um, it's hard to predict anything, but in a world where everything stays as predicted, uh, late February. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You were working in, you know, a lot of the X-Men universe. Yeah. And now it seems as though you have pivoted back to specs. You have a lot of original stuff going on. Yeah. 355. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you're producing the, the Kevin Hart, yeah. uh, F. Gary Gray film mm -hmm. at, um, at Netflix. The David Guggenheim project. Mm -hmm. Can you can you talk and then and Wayland? Mm -hmm. Was this intentional? Was this like? It, it, was this about? I want to build franchises now rather than deal with things that are already pre-established. Was this a conscientious pivot? Um, I think it was a conscientious pivot. Um, uh, I had obviously a great time working in the X Men universe. Um, uh, with the folks at Fox and, and proud of a lot of the movies that we made there and Deadpool and Logan and all those movies. Um, but there is, there is a, a, while there's a wellspring of inspiration, obviously, that you're drawing from, there's also an incredible amount of responsibility and obligation um, to the source material. And as an artist, and as someone that came into this business with Mr. and Mrs. Smith as an original spec, um, I hadn't written an original screenplay um, that had been made since Mr. and Mrs. Smith. 
which mm -hmm. you know came out in 2005 and I wrote in 1999. Um, and last year, uh, during the beginnings of the pandemic, so it was March or April of last year and everything was kind of shutting down and we didn't really know what was going on. And I had a, a, a little pocket, a window of time and I, and I had been playing with this idea of a nonlinear um, heist movie uh, in my mind. And I just was like, you know, I'm just gonna sit down for a couple of weeks and just write something original. Um, and I wrote this script called Here Comes the Flood that Jason Bateman's directing um, at Netflix uh, that we shoot next year. And I, it came out of me in like three, four weeks. Um, and I forgot how good it feels in some ways to just create from scratch, from imagination where anything is possible. You are indebted, obligated to nothing um, other than the limits of your imagination. Um, and you can play. There's an element of play involved that's a little bit less um, of a business or an industry that you're sort of supporting and managing and more you just get to um, tell stories. And that's the reason we all get into doing this. So yeah, I think um, even before that, obviously invasion preceded that and was an original and could have been War of the Worlds, but then for me very quickly pivoted into an original so that I didn't have to be um, in any way indebted to or um, you know obligated to what H.G. Wells or even Orson Welles um, did with with that story, um, and and I'm and I'm really enjoying it. Like I, I really, at the same time, I'm writing and producing Battlestar Galactica as a feature for Universal. So I'm not like it's not. I don't have an allergy um, to that other kind of uh, storytelling, but it's not the dominant thing or the only thing in my life now. Um, I just I, I get to play around in more variety. Uh, than I did before, um, and that's fun. And it also, at a time when I'm really interested in television and I'm interested in other kinds of emergent forms of media, um, it, it just, I, I have the bandwidth to be able to explore and experiment um, and drop myself into something for three or four weeks and come out the other side with a new story to tell. Now, 355 was a huge foreign sales deal mm. um, that, that we broke exclusively. Yep. Um, how did that, how did such what seems to be a very, um, conventional, accessible type of action film wind up outside of the studio system? Well, that was really about Jessica Chastain. Um, it was Jess's initial idea. And when we were making, um, an X-Men, the X-Men movie together that we did, um, she came to me and, and I knew Jessica from The Martian. I produced The Martian and, and obviously she's in that. Um, and we became friends um, on the press tour of The Martian and stayed close friends. Um, and that's why she said yes to being in, in my X-Men movie. And, um, and she came to me while we were filming and she said, you know, I have this idea I've been wanting to do, which is a all-female ensemble spy movie with all the women being from, you know, different countries and different agencies. And I just loved it as a, it is, you're right, it's a very sort of simple down the middle idea in some ways. In other ways, obviously it's unique that they're all female. It's unique that um, it's an ensemble spy movie. That's something that actually that's probably even more unique than having a female spy movie. Um, and that they're for all from different countries that all of that excited me. Um, and so we built it together, um, hired, uh, Teresa Rebeck to write it, um, initially, uh, who's a playwright that Jessica and I are huge fans of, um, and Kelly, uh, Carmichael, who's Jessica's producing partner. Um, and we all worked in it together. Uh, we called actresses that we, new and the pitch to them and it really again was this was generated by jessica was 
you're not just going to be, not that there's anything wrong with this, but you're not just going to be actors or actresses in this movie. You're gonna, we're all gonna be partners in this and we're gonna have some actual fiscal ownership um, of the film uh, in varying percentages and whatnot. Uh, and, and, and that's how it ended up, instead of just selling as a pitch with the amazing cast that really Jessica put together, um, you know, out on the town, uh, she and then all of us, we wanted to um, do it this way so that we retained ownership, we retained in many ways a different kind of authorship creatively. Um, and, you know, I think the notion was that it would empower um, all of the people making the movie in, in, in a slightly different way, create a different kind of model. Um, and so that's why, you know, we had all those actresses and we all went to Cannes, however many Cannes ago that was, um, and, uh, and sold it like almost an independent movie, uh, but then made it like a bigger film. And, and Universal bought the US and the UK rights. Um, so on the surface, it will look like a Universal movie and it is a Universal movie uh, in those two major territories. Uh, but then around the world, there's a different distributor in pretty much every country. So the David Guggenheim project that's at Sony, mm -hmm. uh, that has a supernatural element and has franchise potential, mm -hmm. why is it with some, not, and I'm not saying your projects, but why is it with certain original films, the, the, project, the, the project is under wraps? <laughs> When it's not, I get Star Wars. I get the secret with Star Wars. Right. But when it's original, is it so that there isn't any kind of copycat concepts out there? Like it's such a great idea, someone else, this way a rival studio doesn't run and do another, you know, asteroid film, you know, heading to earth type of thing. Yeah. Is that, is that the reason why things are kept under wraps? I think, I think it's a combination. I think that's one of the reasons. I think, I, I don't think there's that much fear that you know, if, if a place like Deadline um, is gonna break a story um, and it, it, it makes it very much out in the world and you say what the log line or the concept is, it's gonna be hard to rip that off you know, and go around to other studios from scratch and say, hey, I have this great idea. And then somebody at the studio is gonna say, hmm, that sounds familiar or you know, Google it pretty quickly and they'll see. Um, so there's some, maybe some element of the wanting to protect it from, from getting, um, ripped off, but I, I don't think that's actually, I, I actually think it's weirdly that um, there are some ideas that are, um, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, they glance at other ideas that might be set up at studios already. Um, and so what you don't wanna do is like tip another place, uh, hey, that project that like, maybe is close for you, or maybe you haven't thought about for a little while, you should dust off and get going as quickly as possible because now this new project has happening at a rival studio. I actually think that it's more about wanting to protect your project from um, a competition being ahead of you rather than a competition chasing behind you. Um, what is your 2020, what is your 2022 like? What outside of invasion? I mean, you have so many projects, but what, is Battlestar Galactica gonna happen? Is uh, 2022 is gonna be a pretty crazy year. I was just actually on the phone with my um, TV and, 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 um, uh, and movie agents uh, this morning. Um, and we were talking about the year ahead uh, and they were just telling me to get a lot of rest over the break. Um, Invasion will be shooting. Um, uh, the Kevin Hart movie starts shooting first quarter um, that F. Gary Gray is directing that you alluded to at Netflix. 
Um, the movie that I wrote that Jason Bateman's directing um, is shoots in Los Angeles in the summertime. Um, the other project that you referenced that was another original spec I wrote that Jessica and I are produced, Jessica Justin and I are producing, and Mike Showalter, who directed her and Isa Tammy mm -hmm. Faye directing, that we're planning to shoot next summer as well. Um, uh, and I feel like I'm forgetting things, which is absolutely insane. But, you know, we have a lot of other projects that like are on the precipice of shooting next year. There's an Idris Elba um, original project at Apple um, that we sold that Idris is really um, passionate about and we're passionate about. And obviously Apple's excited um, to have him in the film. That might shoot next year. Uh, so there's just, there's a lot um, that we've been developing. And, you know, it, the, the thing that you mentioned before about the years that I spent working in the X-Men movies and working at Fox, that ended really only two years ago um, in 2019. And so I really spent the last two years um, getting ready, building, you know, it takes a while obviously um, to get movies and television shows ready to be shot. Um, and so that's what I've spent the bulk of the last couple of years doing. Um, and so yeah, Battlestar Galactica also is now we're talking to directors about that. Um, that's a that's a massive movie and a massive amount of prep. Um, so you know that might be six months, nine months of actual prep work before it gets shot. But that's another movie that could conceivably um, get start prepping at the beginning of the year um, and and be shooting at the end of the year. So yeah, there's there's a lot. It's going to be a busy year. I'm used to busyness. I like it. Um, obviously, again the training of managing all of the X-Men movies at the same time making other movies while I was at Fox, um, whether they were in Fox, like The Martian or outside of Fox, like Cinderella um, and, you know, other films. Um, uh, I'm used to handling a, a large slate. Um, uh, the only thing that is tricky is doing that while you're directing and sometimes doing that while you're writing. And so I just, not planning on directing anything next year because I really want to focus on the producing and on the writing. Um, and I just want to continue to carve out space, um, really time for myself to do and write, create original work because it brings me a lot of satisfaction and because I think that it's a great time in the world um, to be creating new stuff. Two more quick questions. Logan's Run, is that still in, in the mix for you? Logan's Run is very much in the mix um, and is one of those things that um, uh, a few pieces have to come together that actually aren't creative pieces. They're complex business pieces that have nothing to do with me and are above my pay grade, but um, we're waiting for those things to come together. And then I was talking with my, my boss about this and he was mentioning, he's been hearing more than ever that it is harder to get feature films made. And when I say that, I'm thinking for the big screen. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we're coming out of the pandemic. Does this weigh on your mind? Or does that more have to do with original ideas on the big screen? It's harder to launch original ideas on the big, big screen. I think, it is, just, I, think I think both things are true. I think it's harder. I think it's especially hard to launch original things on the big screen. Um, but I also think it's harder to even launch. Um, I mean, you have an advantage with a title like Battlestar Galactica or obviously a sequel to a successful Jurassic Park or Fast and Furious or 
whatever movie. Um, but I do, you know, less movies are made for the big screen. More movies are made um, for streaming. Um, it's not a harder time to make feature films. Netflix is making more movies probably than any three studios combined were making five years ago um, per year. So I do think, you know, if you're not, um, if you're only talking about movies that are made for theatrical or primarily for theatrical, um, it is a tougher time. Uh, but, you know, some of these movies that are originals are, are finding great success. Like my friends, um, I know that you had on, on the podcast, Sean Levy um, and Ryan Reynolds had amazing success with Free Guy, which is a complete original and I think benefited from being an original. Um, and it was a fabulous movie. Uh, and I think that Sony, which is a studio that as far as I can think of is like the last major studio that doesn't have a streaming platform. Um, Sony's been having kind of hit after hit, it seems like. Um, Tom Rothman and Sanford Panich and the guys over there have been doing a great job, whether it's Ghostbusters or, I mean, like even going back to Bad Boys, they've, they've just found ways to, um, and the Tarantino movie, they have found ways um, to get people to come to the theater. Uh, and so I think when you make the right movie, people will, even in the pandemic, um, people will come to the movie theater. God knows that if we talk in a couple of weeks time, we'll find that Spider-Man will have broken every possible record other than possibly the last Avengers movie. It's breaking records now for pre-sales. So um, I, I think it's, 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 it is harder to get movies made. And I think it's harder to get people to come to the movie theater um, unless you either catch fire culturally or you're a sort of bulletproof title, um, you know, that's just too big to fail. Uh, like Spider-Man or Fast and Furious. And when you make them well, like this new Spider-Man's meant to be, or Ghostbusters was, you really, um, you know, you, you really uh, find incredible success um, and people are excited. I think that, you know, movies have always um, uh, had a challenge, whether it's television or the VCR or uh, cable TV or um, now streaming, they've always been up against something and they've survived and sometimes you know, thrived, I think because of the fact that they are an out of the house activity, they're a place you can go for a date, they can, you can go for just a social gathering, it's a place you can take your kids. Um, obviously that's more complex with, 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 with COVID, um, but people are still going. Uh, and so I, I remain hopeful, because I love going to the movies, um, that the theatrical movie experience um, continues, but yes, it is challenged by all that's happened in the last few years. And that started with stream, the, the sort of um, emergence and ascension of streaming. And then it was accelerated by everyone wanting to stay home uh, for good reason, um, to be safe because of COVID. But it's starting to come back now, hopefully. Simon Kinberg, thank you. Thank you, this was really fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.